Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the understanding, and may we be transformed into your likeness by what you teach us each day and today. We give you praise and glory. In your son, Husha's name we thanks. Amen. So we are going to be talking uh, into our New Testament portion today of John 6.35. We're going to spend quite a bit of time at the end of the message today talking about uh, that word nisi. What does that mean? What does it mean that he is our nisi? Uh, but let's start off in John 6.35. There's some really good stuff we can talk about because... Oh, okay. Let's do a little change here. They're giving me a good uh, indication things just aren't the way they seem. Okay. So we're going to jump into John 6:35. We're all going to uh, also we're going to talk about the bread of life. We will talk about who and what is your refuge. Okay? So let's get started. John 6:35. Yahushua said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. One of the things I like about our fellowship, and I know I can't see everybody over there without doing some dodging, but we, we love to get clarity over text. We love to get clarity over what's being said here and not lean onto our own understanding. And so when I look at this, I want to know, okay, what is the bread of life? And what does it mean to hunger? And what do they understand it means to believe? Because I don't ever want to thirst again, but I need to know what it is to believe in order not to thirst. We can't just think, well, I know what believing is. You know, it's just, it's something I, it's, it's gymnastics I do in my head. Well, that's my understanding, but what is God's understanding and the writer's? What do they get it? So I'm going to keep saying this several times. Who and what is your refuge? Yahweh is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He who believes in me will never thirst, and he will not hunger. So this word hunger is equivalent to suffer want, to be needy. It's the same sense it is joined with dipsan, is used to describe the condition of one who is in need of nothing except for his real spiritual life and salvation. And the spiritual life, we're gonna, that's what this bread of life is. So we have no needs because the supplier is supplying all of our needs. And it's tied to this shepherd who is our healer and our refuge. Okay? So, we'll continue on in John 6. Verse 40, it says, For this is the will of my Father. And we're going to talk about believe here in a minute. The will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son 
and believes in him will have eternal life. I myself will raise him up on the last day. The word behold here is this Greek word that is a spectator. It's used of someone who looks at a thing with interest and for a purpose. It's not just looking to look, but there's a purpose involved. Usually indicating the careful observation of details. What careful observation of what details do you think the Almighty wants us to be observing? This marks the distinction from it is used of experience in the sense of partaking of. So, we behold the Son. We need to find out what this believing is. What does it mean to believe? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him is going to have eternal life. I will raise Him up on the last day. So the word for believe here is this word, pistion, and it, I'll read you this commentary, which I loved what it said. It says, the trusting man, ma'amin, which is equal to this Greek word believe, is also the faithful man, ni'iman, which is equated to this idea of pistos, which is the root of our Greek word. Similarly, faith has a firm relation to the future. It is the assurance that Elohim will do what he has promised. He came and he said, I didn't come to abolish, I came to, I came to do what I promised my servant Abraham that I would do. I gave David promises. I've, I've given patriarchs promises. I'm going to come and make it happen. It's opposite. The opposite to this word of believing is, which is in our text today in the, in the Torah portion, is murmuring and doubt. So the opposite of believing is murmuring, doubting, whereby God is tempted. And it's right in our text as Alfonso read it. They, trust, they tested him. It is expectant hope and stillness. Again, this is important. It has a firm relation to the present as obedience to God's commands. I'll say it again. The word believe has a firm relationship to obedience to God's commands in the fulfillment of which the covenant faithfulness of the people must be demonstrated. That belief, obedience to the commands, must be demonstrated by the people who were in the covenant relationship. John 5.46 says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Hmm. It's all about obedience. Again, this word believe, pisteos or pistis, um, it's to win over, persuade. Subjectively, meaning firm persuasion, conviction, belief in the truth. Now, the word truth has to be defined, and we've done that here. If you're new, you'd have to go back in some of the studies. But basically, truth, if you look at Psalm 119, it'll tell you what the truth is. And if you look at John um, 1717, I think is what it is. Uh, Yeshua tells us what the truth is. He says, your word is the truth. So it's veracity, real, reality, or faithfulness, objectively meaning that that which is believed, doctrine, the received articles of faith. Is it the received articles of what man's faith is and what man says, 
are the received articles of what Elohim, the Most High, has asked us to do. That's the received articles of faith. That's the doctrine that we're to be holding faith to. Our word believe, this first means trusting, not testing, but trusting, inasmuch as trust may be a duty. It can come to have the nuance of obedience. It is the reliability of those bound by the treaty, the covenant. We're going to witness this covenant union here today. Are we bound by a treaty, by a covenant to the Most High? So it's, we are to be trustworthy, we're to be faithful, and it is used of those who stand in a contractual relationship, a covenant agreement. So concretely, our word means the guarantee which creates the possibility of trust. He's guaranteed something, so we can trust him. He's guaranteed you provisions. He's guaranteed you a land. He's guaranteed you life. He's guaranteed you uh, provisions. All these things he's guaranteed you. But as we see in a covenant, the husband and wife are going to say the things that they promised to. And we have said, remember what we did at Shavuot? All that you said we will do. So the first use here in the sphere of sacral law, it's all about his law, is often combined with Horkos, and we find it used as the oath of fidelity, the pledge of faithfulness and security. This leads on the one side to the sense of certainty, trustworthiness, and on the other hand, to that of means of proof. What is the means of proof that you believe? What is the proof? Someone has their hand up. You know, when the master comes, the scriptures say that when Yahushua returns, he's going to say something. And when he returns, he's going to say, well believed, my faithful servant. No. Well done, my faithful servant. Okay, that's the key. All right, go ahead. So as you're speaking, the first verse that popped into my mind was James 2. 22 to 24 do you see that the belief was working with his works or oh, let me i'm going to back up was not abraham our father declared right by works when he offered um isaac his son in the slaughter place do you see that the belief was working with his works and yes. by the works the belief was perfected amen and by the scripture what the by and the scripture was filled with that's oh my gosh i'm so sorry and the scripture was filled, which says Abraham believed Elohim and was reckoned to him as for righteousness. And he called him he who loves Elohim. You see then that a man is declared right by works and not by belief alone. And that also reminds me in, I think it's 1 John 5, 2 and 3, where it says, that if you love him, you will keep his... I mean, that's, Yeshua says that too, but it also talks about how... And actually, let me, can, let me jump over there real quick because I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how it says. Uh, let's see. First, um, sorry, let me just get over there real quick. What's the verse? Uh, I have found it. Um, 
it says in First John 5, 2, <clears throat> by this we know that we love the children of Yahuwah when we, when we love Yah and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Interesting. Polly always makes this comment of Acts chapter 5. What is it, Polly? It says the Spirit comes to those who... Say it. The Spirit is given to those who have mental faith. No. The Spirit is given to those who obey. Very, very interesting. So I think we get a good idea of what it means to believe. So... Moving on in John 6, it says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Yahushua, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Isn't he the guy from Galilee? How does he now say, I have come out of heaven? Yahushua answered and said to them, Do not, here's that grumbling, here's that doubting, Do not grumble among yourselves, no one can come to me, to the master, unless a man comes running and says, you've got to repent and be saved or you're, you're going to go to hell. No, that's not what he says, is it? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws the man. So everyone's running off trying to get a notch on their gun, when in reality, just like all of us have tried to tell our family members about the Torah and the feasts and the Shabbat, and they didn't want to hear it because the Spirit's got to do the drawing. Amen? Weigh it on the Spirit. Weigh it on the Spirit to draw. I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of Elohim. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Hmm. Well, that would have to mean way back in the Tanakh because that's where all of the learning and the teaching is going on. Yes. Yes, this, uh, you know, you said that um, we go out and we try to beat people over the head and bring them to Torah. Uh, the thing is, like, it's the spirit that does the work. And I can show you through, like, your kids. You could teach them all your life. Their grown-up days, the Torah, teach them the right ways. But there's still some that will fall away. But it's they have to accept it themselves, and that's through the Spirit. No matter how much you beat it into their heads, the Spirit is the one that, um, is, that brings them and, and helps them build that relationship. Well said. Okay, so we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty on the bread of life. What? is the bread of life. So verse 46, as we're moving on, it says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from Elohim. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes, we already find out what believing is, has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. We just went over that last week. And they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Here's a commentary. Christ, Messiah, is now to us the tree of life and the bread of life. Messiah is the tree of life and the bread of life. 
So here's what Proverbs 3.18 says about the tree of life. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. The question you should be asking is, who is the she that is the tree of life? And happy are all those who hold fast to her. Remember, tree of life is etz chaim. Etz chaim. I'm going to read you Proverbs 3.1, unless somebody can pull it up. Proverbs 3.1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And remember, Proverbs 3.18 is referring to this 3.1. Don't forget my teaching, keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of Elohim and man. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Don't test him, trust him. And do not lean into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear, we just learned last week what it is to fear the Lord. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body, refreshment to your bones. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For, he, for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than the fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all of her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are those, who hold, are those who hold her fast. So now, we're getting a little bit more clarity of what the bread is and the tree is. Well, let's get further. Going on in John 6, 51, it says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm going to read to you first Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word, the Torah, is the light and the lamp. Watch this. Based on artistic representation of trees in the ancient Near East, one can conclude that the lampstand is a symbolic tree of life. Well, we just read what the lamp is. It's the word. As such, it did more than merely provide light within the tabernacle. It represented life and fertility and the life-giving, living forever, presence of Yahuwah. Now, I found this in Philo. You'll like this. Philo, in Flight 137, it's Philo writes, this is a first-century idea of these things from someone that's alive back in the first century. Those also who have inquired what it is that nourishes the soul, for as Moses says, they knew not what it was, learnt at last and found that it was the Word of God, and the divine reason from which flows all kinds of instinctive and everlasting wisdom. This is the heavenly nourishment which the Holy Scriptures indicates, saying in the character of the cause of all things, Behold, I rain upon you bread from heaven. 
This first century writer understood what the bread from heaven was that Yeshua is declaring he is, and he's attaching it directly to God's Torah, his word. Wow. You got to love it when clarity becomes so evident, right? Any comments or questions before we move into our prophet portion? Okay. Let's move to Isaiah 58. If you turn your foot away from the Sabbath so as to not do the things you wish, and the Hebrew word here is kafetz, on the holy day, and you, delight, or, and you shall call the Sabbath an oneg, a delight, holy to your Elohim, you shall, lift, you shall not lift your foot for work, nor speak a word in anger out of your mouth. Now I've got to tell you something. I have witnessed people get into a heated anger, debated moment on a Sabbath, on a feast day, and they're transgressing here what the Most High is saying not to do on the Sabbath. Because it's not just the seventh day. Sabbaths could be the first day of unleavened bread. It could be the first day of Sukkot. Here's what it says in verse 11. Oh, Yahweh, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. We just learned last week what it is to fear him, right? It means to walk in your Torah. Those who delight to walk in your Torah. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Our Hebrew word, kafetz, means pleasure, desire, concretely a valuable thing, a matter, something, something, something acceptable, a very strong delight. The Greek word for kafetz is thelema, and it's a word purely biblical and ecclesiastical. The Septuagint for kafetz, and it is what one wishes or has determined shall be done, Something willed, but not your will, the Father's will. And we just talked about a week or two ago what the Father's will is. Okay. So I have something to share with you today. This is the one thing out of the prophet portion I wanted to share. But in my program, they allowed me to, that something new came to the program that I use for biblical studies. And so how many of you know what a hapax Legomena is. <laughs> so you're all going to learn something new today. So this is a term or a word which only appears one time in all of Scripture. The hapax legomena. Okay? I'm going to show you in our Torah portion today, in Exodus chapter 17, there are three of these hapax legomenas. Let's look at them. Exodus 16.31, The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers is the word that appears only once. The Hebrew word is zafachit, and it's H6838. Again, in 16.33, Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar. The Hebrew word is zenzenet, only appears once in all of Scripture. 
And then in Exodus 17, 16, my English doesn't capture the Hebrew word that only appears once. In the English, it says Yahweh has sworn, but in the Hebrew, it's kes, which means throne. Yahweh has said he has not sworn Yahweh's throne, and the Greek down below that has it very interestingly a different way, and it says, because by a secret hand, Yahweh fights against Amalek from generation to generations. I actually like both, but you've got to understand why the word throne is here and why the word, why secret hand. And uh, Bob and Tammy and I were talking before about what's taking place here as they're coming out of the Red Sea. And so listen to this. God swore that his name and throne would not be complete until Amalek, and let's just say what's behind Amalek, okay? The, the adversary does not want God's promise to come to pass. And if the children of Israel are going to come to the land, his promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. And so we've got to make a stand here against the children of Israel because we've got to keep them and his purpose from happening. The Greek word for secret hand can be found in these verses, Matthew 6, 18. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will be reward you. Jeremiah 23, 24, the same Greek word. Can a man hide himself in hiding places? So I do not see him, declares Yahweh. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares Yahweh. And then Jeremiah 23, 24 says, If someone shall be hidden in secret places, is it not I that shall also see him? Do I not fill the sky and the earth, says Yahuwah? So what is it about throne in secret places here? It's about this thing about the, 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 the children of, of uh, Amalek coming up against God's redemptive people being restored. Hmm. It's going to take some more digging. Tammy. I, um, I have studied manna all week. And manna is given to us in chapter 16 of Exodus. And it parallels chapter, John chapter 6. So mm -hmm. if you, I encourage everybody to do a word study on manna. Amen. Because you will find out that we can't live without manna. And then the, after following the manna in chapter, um, Exodus chapter 17, we get the living water. And that also is followed in John 7, where they talk about that. So when you're comparing or when you're studying it, do 16 and 17 of Exodus and 6 and 7 of John. But that's not what I was going to tell you. Um, you were talking about something hidden, and I would like to read um, Revelation 17, 2, 17. Awesome. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. To him winning the victory, or some um, translations say to the overcomer, mm -hmm. um, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone on which is written a new name that nobody knows except the one receiving it. 
And I had never heard of this white stone until this week. So I did a word study on that, and I found out that it means not guilty. Ah. So he has this hidden manna. Well, when they told the children to preserve the manna, that manna ends up in a golden vessel within the ark, within the tabernacle, within the midst of the people. So it's hidden deep inside the tabernacle. Yes. And so that's the hidden manna. But in our application of ourself, um, what we take in and eat, and I'm talking metaphorically now, what we take in from the word, from the manna of the word. From heaven. That we take in and we get into our, our being, that is the hidden manna within us. So if you think about all of that correlating together, the hidden things are those things of God that you take into your soul, and the hidden things are in the, this 217. Awesome, awesome stuff. Going back to your 1716, where it says, because the Lord has sworn, it's al Yah. Yes. And it's spelled incorrectly in the Hebrew. So it's broken down into two words, kashya. So uh, the kes goes to kase or throne of, and yah is short for yod hey vav hey. So what happens is, as long as we're falling to Amalek, God's name fails to be formed in our life, and his throne fails to appear in our lives. But when we defeat our enemies, his throne appears, and his name is completed. So in there, it's kashya, and it's broken up so it's spelled incorrectly in the hebrew so you're saying because uh, yeah kase would be he- hidden which we find in so- uh, psalm 83 about blowing the trumpet on the on the uh, new moon and, and that word new moon is kase some people translate it as hidden day yeah. which a new moon is a hidden day yeah yep. and yeah. it goes to psalms 9 5 you have rebuked the nations you have destroyed the wicked you have blotted out their name which is egypt and amalek Forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even there, Egypt and Amalek, memory has perished. But the Lord, Yodeh Vavheh, shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne. He so for judgment. So is there a hidden day of Yahuwah that no one knows? Yeah. <laughs> and what, I mean, what, if, if this whole thing about Amalek, this is, we've got to get a hold of this because it's very important. So Amalek, and I mentioned this to Bob and Tammy, and I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself. So I've noticed that this Apex Legomena really helped me see something that's very interesting, and that is when the children of Israel have been redeemed and they're coming out, they're coming through the Red Sea, the adversary, the, 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 the gods of Babylon and Egypt are now coming up, using people to come up and wage war because they're now in opposition to that which has been redeemed, that which has been delivered and set free. My question to you is this. At Yahushua's death, when he's redeeming us from death, what people were at that moment in opposition to the redemption? Because I'm seeing that it's the seed of Amalek that is at, at the moment of redemption. It's Amalek who's waging, God says, I'm going to wage war with Amalek forever. It's, a, it's an eternal war wage with Amalek and the descendants of Amalek. So that means that Yeshua's death, when redemption is happening, there is people here now in opposition to that, trying to prevent this from happening. Very interesting, something to think about. And my, my, I'll go one step further. As we are being now opened up to the truth, and our eyes are beholding 
what we're supposed to be doing, there's a people, this is why I think Yahushua said, in the last days you're going to suffer persecution for my name's sake, because there is a people that's going to rise up to oppose the, the sons of Joseph, the Ephraimites, who are coming into knowledge of who they are and does not want that to happen. These three things, I think, are tied together. Yes. So I always assumed that the manna was put into a mason jar, and I'm being funny. <laughs> but Tammy mentioned something that brings a very serious question. If it was put in a gold vessel of some kind, is there a deeper meaning to that being a gold vessel? She's shaking her head, yes. <laughs> yes, there is. And so if you notice, the whole ark was, was encased in gold. Uh, so we have the whole tabernacle resting on silver. We've got gold in this place of the, uh, where the ark is. So yes, we've, it's, it's, and it's about preservation. Silver, redemption, the gold, preservation. Uh, I'm sure she would, would and could add more to that. So, uh, and it's up to her if she wants to or not. All right, I want to, here's the three words. I put the three words here for you. And thank you for pointing out, it's not kes, it's kese. That makes sense why the Greek rendered it as a secret place. Because if you looked at kese, you would know what that is. So very good, good, good catch. Okay, Exodus 16, 27. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then Yahweh said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my, my commandments and my instructions? And of course, the instruction word is the Hebrew word Torah. And we're not yet at Sinai receiving the commandments yet. You got to love it. You just got to love it, right? Okay. If you have questions, comments, raise your hand. Israel now proceeds toward Mount Horeb. And another outbreak of rebellious feeling against Moses is reported. Thereafter, the people are confronted with their first military engagement. Under the leadership of Joshua, Israel defeats Amalek. Although it is not military prowess, but Elohim's will that achieves victory, which it will be every time at Yeshua's death and resurrection and at our now coming to who we are, it's He that's going to do it, right? For ancient Near Eastern armies went into battle behind standards symbolizing their Elohims. Hence the picture of Moses, his hands upraised and supported by Aaron and Hur, presents a symbolic standard that is to remind the people of Elohim that he is fighting for them. Appropriately, the altar built to commemorate the victory was called Adonai or Yahweh Nisi, the Eternal is my refuge. This event is accorded special historic significance. Why? Because Moses is told, he's bidden by the Most High to record this conflict in a document and note that henceforth Amalek is to be considered Israel's and Elohim's implacable enemy forever. Forever. I mean, this is forever. They're the enemy forever against God Almighty and His people. Wow. What a... What an indictment against the people. So the adversary brings the enemy against God and his people as soon as deliverance takes place. So think about Yahushua's redemption and who is the enemy opposing. Exodus 16.35 The sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. 
So this word, until they came, according to Joshua 5, 12, which we're going to read in a second, the manna ceased at Passover time at Gilgal when they entered the promised land. I found something interesting here. We're reading Joshua 5.10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gagal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. There's two things I want you to draw your attention to. Gilgal, and it's not any land they're eating grain from. So you talk about how important the manna is, and it's in the golden jar, but now they're eating of the manna, or the, the food, that's from the land of Elohim. Remember, the guy that's dipping seven times in the Jordan, he's so impressed, he wants to take some of the dirt back with him. That's how impressed he is with that soil from the land of the living God. So watch this. So I want to find out where Gilgal is, and I want to bring your attention to something about Gilgal. Gilgal is here just before. You can see the river on the very top right corner, Jordan. They just crossed the Jordan here on the far right side. And you know they're going to go to Jericho next, right? And so they're here at Gogol, but Gogol is something interesting. I'm going to read from you 1 Samuel 11:14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingship there. Ooh, boy. They're going to renew the kingship at Gogol. So all the people went to Gagal and confirmed Saul as king. You know what's interesting, it struck me is here, they're coming across, remember the, the, the Jordan parted, they're carrying the ark over, the Jordan parted, parted, the king of kings, Yahweh himself is going before them, and they come to Gilgal, and they're going to eat of the, he's going to take the fruit of his land here at Gilgal as king almighty to them at Gilgal, and he's establishing himself as king over the people that he just brought in to his inheritance. And what does he do? He makes sure that they come, because remember, they stopped wanting him as king, and they asked for a man. He gives them Saul, and he says, okay, if you want the man, You've got to come to the place that I established my kingship over you at Gogol to bring him as king. Oh, what awesome connections. What awesome connections of our king. So let me ask you a question. When we all come into the land, where do you think we're going? <laughs> we're crossing the Jordan. We're going to Gogol. That's where the king is going to renew himself over his people there. What an awesome place, huh? And it's in the territory of your brother, Benjamin. Yeah, what an awesome thing it is. I don't know, I, I love those kinds of things. It's very awesome. They sacrificed peace offerings there before the Almighty. And Saul and all the Israelites rejoiced greatly. What an awesome time. Okay. Verse 15. And Moses built an altar to Yahuwah and called its name, Yahuwah is my refuge. Yahuwah Nisi. The word Ness is also used in the prophets in connection with the return to Zion. An ensign is to be raised over the nations, and they will bring the sons and daughters of Zion back 
to her. And as I just mentioned, I think we're going to cross the Jordan and go right through Gilgal on our way to Zion. It is not surprising that Isaiah, the Christological prophet par excellence, personifies the word Ness. He says, In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a Ness, an ensign to the peoples. Him shall the nation seek. So Israel's messianic king will be lifted up that all men might rally around him, the refuge, the Ness. <laughs> Who is and what is your refuge, your Ness? So this is our last verse to drosh on today. So if you have something to share, please do it now because we're going to be studying three words that are attached to the word banner and refuge, which speaks of who our Elohim is to us. Any comments or thoughts on the Torah portion? Any? Feel free. It's your moment to, if you want to share something, yes, go ahead. We're way early, so, yeah. So, uh, reading uh, the Torah portion for this week, um, um, it reminded me, like, this, this Torah portion reminded me of a relationship between um, kids and parents. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Specifically, the murmuring and the grumbling. <laughs> yeah, the murmuring and the grumbling. You know, and... Um, uh, um, in case you haven't noticed, you know, I have kids in all stages of life. I have adult yes. kids all the way down to like three years old. So we hear a lot of grumbling and so forth. Um, but if we go through um, the, the, the Israelites leaving Egypt, uh, if you look in Exodus um, 17, where we're at right now, um, Moshe asks, like, or Yahuwah says, why do you test? Or Moshe says, yeah. why do you test yeah. Yahuwah? Yeah, why okay. do you do that? In Exodus 14, when the Egyptians caught up to the Israelites at the Red Sea, uh, they grumbled out of fear. Yep. You know, and, and they said, like, why did you bring us out of Egypt? You know, was there enough, not enough graves um, yeah. in Egypt to bury us? Then we go to Exodus 15 at Moriah. Uh, the Israelites grumbled because after walking three days, they came to water but was bitter. <laughs> and they grumbled. Exodus 16, there's like ass, um, they're hungry. Yeah. And so they're saying like, well, if, if we were in Egypt, you know, we would have pots, yeah. of, you know, pots of boiling meat and yeah. so forth. They grumbled again. And we'd have pizza and steak and uh, all yeah. the good stuff. Yeah. Now in Exodus 17... They're grumbling again because they don't have water. Um, so, basically, it's like... And we just read where it said, the opposite of faith is murmuring and grumbling. Yeah. Yes. And so Moshe, being a man, and he's not perfect, right? He gets angry. And he says, what am I, what am I to do with you? And as we as parents or... Um, if there's people who don't have children, or you were children once before, too. So when he says, what am I to do with you? Usually there's a punishment that comes after that. Right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it reminds me of um, my children, right? We, uh, when we raise our children, when they're young, you, you set 
or standards, but yes. they break it. But you, you treat them differently. You don't treat them with severe punishment because they're still growing. They're still learning. But we see that um, up till now, or even until they came to Sinai, Yahuwah responded not in an angry way. He gave them safety, and he gave them water. He gave them food. He gave them water. So he was helping them along the way. But it was Moses, the one that was angry. So um, it wasn't until they came to Mount Sinai that things changed when there was accountability. They agreed to the, the laws and the statutes. And um, so in Deuteronomy 29, 29, I, I believe it's all about accountability. You know, when our kids grow to a certain age, now you're going to start, you know, holding up to a standard. Yes. The, the punishments will get more severe as they get older. So in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to Yahuwah our Elohim, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. Amen. And again, in Luke 12, 48, it says, When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. So we can see, and then we're talking earlier about how we can't beat people over the head. It's the, the spirit that brings us, brings people to him. Amen. You know, and it's, I just, I noticed that, is that Amen. there was a, a, a children and parent situation going here. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to talk about this first word, which is Yahuwah, my banner, my Nisi. So in Exodus 17, 8 through 15, the scene in Israel's battle with the Amalekites, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When they let down his, his hand, Amalek prevailed. So Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, and Israel was victorious. So when we read, and Yahuwah said unto Moses, write this for memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yehovah Nisi, Yahuwah, my banner or my refuge. So Nisi is obviously a transliteration of the Hebrew Nisi, which is from Ness, which paints quite a picture. Imagine a great multitude of people, such as an army, rallying around a pole on which flew a standard or other ensign. Here they gather to look upon the object with hope. An expectation. That was the nest in ancient times. Besides military assembling, people would gather around a nest for other common actions or announcements of important information. Another graphic example appears in Numbers 21, where because of their murmuring and rebellion, the people were plagued by venomous snakes. Upon their repentance, Moses fashioned a facsimile of a snake made of bronze and placed it on a pole, a nest. All that was required for healing was to look upon that symbol of sin judged and prov provided for. So graphic was the symbol that our master, uh, our, our king, referred to himself as being lifted up like in like manner. So I was reminded of the raising of the American flag on Mount Suribaki on Iwo Jima, February 1945, and upon finally taking the island after three days of savage fighting, a Marine patrol hoisted a small flag, followed shortly after a large one. 
which was immortalized in the famous, most famous photograph of the Pacific War and later recreated in a bronze statue that today looks out over the Potomac River. Not only was that flag an incalculably valuable moral booster when it was raised, but the statue dedicated in 1954 became the official Marine Corps Memorial. Far grander, though, however, is our banner, was it Israel who actually prevailed against the Amalekites? No, it was Elohim. Likewise, Elohim will win the victory of, in our spiritual war as we trust in his word alone. And I like it when commentary says what we believe, and it says it like it's supposed to be said, victory comes only with obedience. He is our banner, our refuge. The other word I want to take you to that's attached to this banner is fortress, Masudah. Next to Jerusalem, the fortress stronghold of Masada is the most popular destination of Jewish tourists visiting the Holy Land. The capture of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD practically ended the great revolt led by the zealots. The remaining few fled to Masada, a fortress on top of an enormous rock plateau near the Dead Sea. How many of you have been there to Masada? It's an amazing place. Only three narrow difficult paths led to the top and anyone climbing them was an easy target from above. The Roman 10th Legion had to settle for a siege that lasted several months. Then, rather than be captured, all 960 defenders committed suicide, except for two women and five children who had hidden themselves. So important is Masada as a focal point of Jewish survival, Israeli soldiers take an oath there, Masada shall not fall again. Unlike that fortress, however, we have one that will never be breached at all. While Masuda is used to refer to literal fortresses, such as David's capture of Zion, or Jerusalem, from the Jebusites, uh, a stronghold, many of its occurrences are figurative references to Elohim and his acts of salvation. Psalm 91, 2 stands out. I will lay hold of Yahuwah, he is my refuge and my fortress, my Elohim in whom I will trust. So Spurgeon observes here something interesting. Let us, when we are secure in the Lord, rejoice that our position is unassailable. For he is our fortress as well as our refuge. And this is the position they should have been in when they're murmuring. When they're there at these places murmuring that we have a fortress we have a stronghold. We have a, a, a refuge here who is well equipped for our needs. No moat, portcullis, drawbridge, wall, battlement, or dungeon could make us so secure as we are when the attributes of Yahuwah Zevaot environs around us. Coupling rock and fortress, David again writes, Thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Be thou my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort. Thou hast given commandments to save me, for thou art my rock and my fortress. Amen? It is this perfect pair of words that bring to our minds 
the third stanza and refrain of the great hymn. How often the conflict, when pressed by the foe, I have fled to my refuge and breathed out my woe. How oft, when trials like a sea billows roll, have I hidden in thee, O thou rock of my soul. Hiding, here's our hiding again, hiding in thee, hiding in thee, thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. That's what a stronghold is. How many of you have seen in, the, in, in England when they call a stronghold, what was the stronghold for? When, the, when the, the castle is about to be built. So, so you've got the castle walls way out here. In the center of the castle, there's this stronghold. I forget now the word they use for it. Huh? There's a word for it. I forget now. It's uh, Huh? Well, the water's outside the, the walls of the castle. But this, this, this cleft, this stronghold, uh, it was the place when the walls were breached, the people would return to the stronghold. So when the walls of the castle were breached, everyone would retreat to this central part that was the stronghold. It, it, it should be, in, you, couldn't, you couldn't get in it. It was, it, was, it was on solid bedrock. So he is our rock. He is our hiding place. Okay. And the last word I'm going to take you to is high tower. Mizgav. David's final metaphor for Elohim in Psalm 18.2 is the high tower. What a picture we have here. And I'm, I'm giving you these examples and these pictures because this is what should have been in the mind of the people as they were facing the, the bitter water, as they were facing this hunger, as they were facing enemy. All the times they're facing obstacles, this is what we should be thinking about. This is a single word in the Hebrew, mezgav, which refers to a stronghold on an elevated ground, either a natural one or man-made. An example of the former is in Isaiah 33, 16, where God's righteous people will be victorious against his enemies. The righteous man shall dwell on high. His place of defense, mezgav, shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given to him. <laughs> what bread do you think? His waters shall be sure. Munitions is Masad, another form of Mesudah. So natural defenses themselves can be good fortresses. So our word misgav is then used to refer to a man-made fortification, such as a fort with high walls or a city with high wall. Uh, in Isaiah 30, uh, 30, 13, wall in these last two verses is sagav, the root of misgav, which means to be inaccessibly high, implying walls that are insurmountable. You couldn't get to the top of it. All this, therefore, provides peaceful assurance to all of us, for the Almighty also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Psalm 9.9, both instances of refuge are misgav. So sure can we be of this fact that we should say, because of his strength, while I wait upon you, for Elohim is my misgav, my defense. And then we should sing of his power. I will sing aloud of his mercy in the morning, for he has been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Can everyone say amen?
What comfort there is in knowing that our Most High is our high tower, a citadel high planted on a rock, rocky, rocky eminence beyond the reach of enemies. The enemy can't get to it. From the heights of which I look down upon their fury without alarm and survey a wide landscape of mercy reaching even unto the goodly land beyond Jordan. John Gill well sums up these great metaphors. He says, These various epithets show the fullness of safety in our master, Yahuwah. The various ways he has to deliver his people from their enemies and secures them from danger. And the psalmist beholding the claiming his interest in him under all these characters rendered him exceedingly lovely and delightful to him. And each of them contain a reason why he loved him and why in the strength of grace he determined to love him. What is it? God may be regarded in all these characters as our Messiah, the one who is our refuge and our hope. Yeah. Hallelujah. We have a comment over here. Yes, go ahead. Uh, just a question. In the commentary you read, it said um, they used the word epithets. What does that mean? Uh, it would be, uh, someone help me out here. The, I had the definition here. I'll answer that after the service. It'll take too much time to hunt it up. Okay. So we're, would you stand with me? We're going to close. So are you in trouble? Have you been in trouble? Has trouble been knocking on your door? It could be financial trouble. It could be trouble at home. It could be kid trouble. It could be parent trouble. <laughs> it could be trouble at work. It could be car trouble. Ooh. It could be husband and wife trouble. Now, since she said that, you all need to raise your hands. You're all in that spot. <laughs> we can receive help by expressing faith. Am I being battered by the enemy? My soul will find refuge by leaning in faith upon him. But without faith, I call to him in vain. For faith is the only road between my soul and above. If the road is blocked, and remember, faith is obedience. Faith is obedience. How can I communicate with the great king if I'm disobedient? If I'm not eating the bread from heaven, the word. It is possible to become strong through and through by completely taking refuge in the power of Elohim and by realizing that our greatest weakness and the things that upset our determination to be patient, pure, or humble provide an opportunity to make sin powerless over us or trouble over us. This opportunity comes through Him who loves us and who works to bring us into agreement with His will and thereby supplies a blessed sense of His presence and His power. Father, we thank You for this message today that we have been encouraged and we've been strengthened to remember that you are our refuge, you are our high tower, you are our banner, you are the safe hidden place that we go. 
because there is nothing that can assail us. Nothing can come against us when we have taken up our spot and our place in you and your word. Father, thank you for showing us that. Thank you for showing us that the enemy, Amalek, is always going to be beseeching us, is always going to be battling against you and us because he doesn't want your plans to succeed. We thank you that we have you to lean on, that you are the one that teaches us. You're the one that shapes us and molds us through your word. May we be a people that's faithful in continuing to read your word and imply it into our lives that it transforms us each day. We thank you for this lesson and a reminder of who you are. You are Yahweh, our Nisi. We give you glory and praise today in your son Yahushua's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is where we get to say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Hey, Shabbat Shalom. Hey, Shabbat, 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 Shabbat Shalom. Hey. 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 Thank you, everybody online for joining us. Uh, our service will continue with the wedding, but it will be only on Zoom. Thank you for joining us and being part of that. Thank you all for being here as part of the service. Now we get to watch a wonderful, beautiful wedding ceremony. So Shabbat Shalom.